Greetings and salutations, fellow humans. It has been more than a week since our last meeting entirely too long. Way longer than I would like. But, as I say, sometimes life has other plans. Anyway, let me take just a moment to thank you for hanging out with me, if only for a short while. I am your host, The Gru, and today's episode is number 15. Let's see what a quick Google search tells us about the number 15. Hmm, interesting. According to Google, 15 is a number that falls somewhere between 14 and 16. Well, that's not very helpful. Hmm. Well, according to numerologyland.com, and no, I'm not making that up, the number 15 is lucky, kind of like the subject of today's discussion. He was lucky he was never found out. He was lucky he was never caught. But if you look at it the other way, his victims were very unlucky. You know, it's a good thing my script count doesn't affect other people's lives. He considered himself a demon of sorts. The murderer, I mean. Even writing a letter directly from hell, which was printed in newspapers all across New Orleans back in 1918 and the following year. Oh, and he also liked jazz music a lot. Well, he may have been a killer, but at least he had good taste in music. It could have been worse, I suppose. He could have been a fan of polkas, and nobody wants that. Except that one uncle of yours who always finds a way to dress up in lederhosen and do the chicken dance at every party. You know the one I mean. Anyway, I am, of course, talking about the Axeman of New Orleans. A pretty straightforward nickname, if not mundane. Oh well, we don't always have a say in our nicknames, do we? Of course, this was no mere nickname. It was his nom de plume, as it were. It was an accurate description of his extracurricular activities. So, walk with me now, fellow humans, and listen as we take it on back to post-Civil War USA. Specifically, a late May night. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include mentions of death, descriptions of physical abuse, dead bodies, and crime scenes. Listener discretion is therefore advised. So, let's talk about the Axeman himself. He was a fan of the axe, and uh, that axe tended to belong to the family he murdered. Like I said, they really phoned it in in the creative names department. But, as the media tends to do, they took it and used it, and the name stuck. But the Axeman was no thief, unless you count the theft of human life. Hmm. Too poetic. Anyway, to commit the crimes, the Axeman removed a panel of the back door with the help of a chisel, which was then left on the floor. Then the culprit attacked one or more of the people that were in the house using either an axe or a razor. Most of his victims had Italian blood, either by being Italian immigrants or descended from them, and this made people believe that the crimes were racially motivated, or that the reason behind the murders were the Mafia. The Axeman seemed to kill more women than men, and some criminologists said that the only men he killed were the ones who tried to defend their partners. This theory is supported by the fact that sometimes the women of the household was the only victim. 
One day, the Axeman decided to give a chance of survival to Orleanians, giving them a warning before striking on March 14, 1919. A letter, published in many newspapers that soon made it become widespread, it said the following. Hell, March 13, 1919. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axe Man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis, Yosef, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am. For it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure that the police will always dodge me as they always have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it will go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed in fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. By the way, I had to look up Tartarus. Uh, for those who don't really know what it is and don't feel like looking it up, it is the deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked and as the prison for the titans in Greek mythology. You're welcome. If you already knew, why didn't you tell me? Anyway, to the killer's wishes, any and all existing dance halls were filled to the brim the following night, with both professional and amateur jazz bands playing music all over the city. There were no deaths by the Axeman's hands on March 14th. He was satisfied with this, it would seem. In yet another letter, the serial killer said that he would spare whoever played jazz music at the home during the night. So many people believe that these murders had a sole purpose of promoting that kind of music. 
this worked in a way, although jazz is good on its own. Not really sure why someone would feel they needed a boost. Anyway, a crime writer, Colin Wilson, speculated that the Axeman could have been a man called Joseph Mumphrey, who was shot in Los Angeles, December 1920, by the window of the last known serial killer's victim. This theory became widespread, but when Michael Newton, yet another writer, started to investigate, he found nothing about this mysterious man. Momfrey wasn't an uncommon surname in New Orleans, so Wilson's theory is more a myth than anything else, at least until more evidence is found regarding this man. It is said that the main suspect was someone called Frank Doc Momfrey, whose alias was Leon Joseph Monfrey Manfrey. Nothing is certain these days, but the theory is still out there waiting for confirmation or negation. Now, we can't talk about a murderer without talking about the victims, can we? So, let's start with Joseph and Catherine Maggio, a couple that was attacked on May 23, 1918 while they slept. The murderer cut their throats with a razor and bashed their heads in with an axe before leaving the crime scene. Joseph survived only for a short time. He died shortly after he was discovered by his brothers, Jake and Andrew. While his wife didn't survive at all, her head had almost been severed because of how deep the cut was on her throat. She never had a chance. Authorities found bloody clothes in the apartment which suggested that the axe man had changed into clean clothes before leaving, and later the murder weapon was found on the neighboring lawn. Nothing of value was missing from the home. At first, there was a suspect, though, as the razor belonged to Andrew Maggio, brother of one of the victims. His employee told police that he had taken the razor out of the barbershop because he wanted to have a nick honed from the blade. Andrew lived in the adjoining apartment to his brothers and discovered the victims after hearing weird groans through the wall two hours after the attack and claimed that he hadn't heard anything at the moment of the crime because he was drunk. He was released because investigators couldn't break down his statement and he had told the police there had been an unknown man lurking around the apartments before the murders happened. A bit over a month later, on the morning of June 27th, Louis Basumer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in the quarters at the back of his grocery. Basumer was hit with a hatchet above his right temple and Lowe was slashed over her left ear. They were discovered at around 7 a.m. by John Zonka, a driver of a bakery wagon who had arrived at the place to make his usual delivery. He found the couple in a puddle of their own blood which was flowing from their heads, and the axe that Basumer had owned was found in the bathroom of the edifice. Basumer had said he had been asleep when he was attacked, and authorities quickly arrested Louis Ubicon, an African-American man who had been working in the grocery just a week before the murder had happened. There was no solid evidence against him apart from the conflicting accounts of his whereabouts, and so he was soon released. Lowe said that she had been attacked by a mulatto man, but authorities were not sure if they could trust this information because she wasn't completely well yet. It was said that the crime was motivated by robbery, but nothing of value had been taken from the house. Attention shifted towards Basumer, who had a lot of letters written in three different languages hidden in his home. Police suspected that he was a German spy and soon began investigating him, and weeks later, Lowe said that she suspected the same thing, and soon Basumer was arrested. But he was released after two days, although he was arrested for a second time in August of the same year because his lover said that he was the culprit before dying after a surgery. He was charged with murder, and was acquitted May 1, 1919, after a jury deliberation. 
Lowe was also the center of attention from the media, as she often said far-fetched and false statements about both the attack and her lover. It was worse when people discovered that they weren't married, as Basumer went to the hospital looking for the room of Mrs. Harriet Lowe, and nobody knew who he was talking about. Basumer's actual wife arrived shortly after, and the drama was well-fed for a while. After the cheating situation was revealed, Lowe told reporters that she wouldn't help the police anymore as she suspected that authorities had revealed this secret, yet she still returned to the house she shared with her lover weeks after the attack. Part of her face had been paralyzed because of the attack, and she died on August 5, 1918, shortly after a surgery intended to correct this issue. Over a month later, on the evening of August 5, Anna Schneider was attacked. She was eight months pregnant, but the Axeman still bashed her face until her scalp was cut open and her face was covered in blood. Her husband, Ed Schneider, found her after returning from work past midnight. Anna gave birth to a healthy girl two days after the incident, and nothing was stolen apart from six or seven dollars lying on Ed's wallet at the time of the incident. There was no forced entry to the apartment, and police said that Anna had been attacked with a lamp from her own house. They arrested James Gleason shortly after the woman had been found, who said that he had run away because he had been arrested multiple times in the past, and there was no evidence tying him to the attack. This murder attempt was what made investigators believe that these crimes were connected, the fourth of many more attacks to happen. The next rampage occurred just five days later on August 10th. Joseph Romano was the victim, who was an elderly man living with his nieces Pauline and Mary Bruno. They woke up late in the night as they heard commotion coming from their uncle's room and were quick enough to see the attacker running away. They said that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Romano was able to walk towards the ambulance despite his injuries, but still died two days later. The home was devastated, yet nothing was missing. Authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and then discovered a chiseled panel on the back door. This crime made the city become chaotic, and everyone soon became afraid of the Axeman, and everyone claimed to have seen him lurk around all parts of New Orleans. Some people even said they found axes in their backyards, but it was never clear if this was sensationalized or the truth. A retired Italian detective of the time had the theory that the Axeman was the culprit of crimes happening back in 1911 describing similarities between the cases and described the murders as a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because he claimed that the Axeman had two personalities, a good one and a murderous one that appeared without warning. After the Romano murder, the Axeman took a long break and killed once again on March 19, 1919. Orlando Giordano heard screaming coming from a residence and ran to investigate. There he discovered that Charles Cortemiglia and his wife Rosie and his daughter Mary had been attacked by an intruder. Rosie held her dead child in her arms, standing in the doorway with a head injury, while her husband was bleeding on the floor. Both of them had skull fractures, discovered once they were rushed to the hospital. Nothing was missing, but a panel on the back door had been chiseled away, and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Charles went home two days after the attack while his wife remained with the doctors for some time more. Once she recovered her consciousness, Rosie said that Irlando Giordano and his son were the culprits, but this wasn't true at all. Irlando was too sick to be able to murder someone, and his son was too tall to enter through the panel of the back door. Even when Charles said that his wife wasn't telling the truth, 
Police arrested both accused men and they were found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang and E. Orlando was sentenced to life in prison, but nothing ever happened because Rosie later said that she had lied and that was all the evidence that they had against these men. The Axeman returned in late summer, August 10, 1919. Steve Boca awoke during the night to see a dark figure near his bed, an intruder. He ran to the street to investigate and found out that he had a deep wound on his head to which he ran towards a neighbor's home before passing out. He recovered, but he couldn't remember anything about the attack. Nothing was missing from the house, but a panel of the back door had been chiseled away, just like in previous murders. Less than a month later, on September 3rd, 1919, there was yet another attack. Sarah Lawman was severely injured and had broken teeth once her neighbors went to check on her, and the woman couldn't remember anything about the attack even after fully recovering. The axeman had entered her home through an open window, and a bloody axe was found on the front lawn. And last but not least, we have Mike Pepitone and the Axeman's last victim, who passed away October 27, 1919. Remember the theory about his widow being who killed the culprit? Well, Mrs. Pepitone wasn't able to recall anything about the serial killer, even if she had been awakened by noise and saw a man running away from the home, leaving behind a bloody body and absolutely nothing else. A theory says that the Axeman was angry at Italian-Americans because black jazz musicians weren't getting the acknowledgement they deserved. Either that or he was angry because Storyville, New Orleans Red Light District, was shut down in 1917 and with it many of the places in which jazz music thrived were closed down. The Axeman was never identified or caught and it's actually rumored that his killing spree started back in 1872 and ended in 1922, now in Germany. From March 13th to the 15th, it is a New Orleans tradition to play jazz in most places in which music can be played, such as clubs, to play to the Axeman's spirit and to soothe his anger. Well, alas, fellow humans, we have come to the end of yet another episode. I do apologize for being a bit late on this episode. Okay, a lot late. I am not always able to get them out as quickly as I would like, but rest assured, fellow humans, that as long as I am able, there will always be a next one. Also, I'm still working on getting these episodes onto YouTube, and my new venture is also going to be on TikTok. As usual, I just wanted to say that it was a privilege and a pleasure to spend time with you today. My day is made brighter because of it. That was episode 15 of ASM Murder. If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed, or if you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website, murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. Say it with me. You can also find my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I also have a Twitter, and you can find me at ASM Murder at MurderPod. If you can, leave me a good review. Maybe throw some stars my way. I would be mighty grateful. I'll leave links in the description. If you enjoy what you hear, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, fellow humans, please be kind to yourselves, be good to each other. Take care.